Good morning, everybody. It's always wonderful to be together again, to worship together, uh, to worship the, uh, the one true living God. And, uh, and I, I just want to take a quick moment to, to thank the, the worship team uh, just for uh, your commitment uh, every week to, to lead this group of people in worship through song and, and confession and uh, the, the structure of, of our, our liturgy is, is designed in such a way that it feels fresh and invigorating while still clinging to practices that the church has, has practiced for generations. And so uh, I usually describe our worship style as comfortable liturgy, that it's open to anyone who comes in, but it, there's still a, a traditional liturgical element that unites us we're not just the church of today, but we're, the, we're part of the church eternal that has existed for generations. And I'm extremely thankful for that and for our elders that help shepherd this church. But when I first became a believer, I didn't always appreciate these things, like the hymns that we sing and things like a confession of sin and, 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 and elements like that. Because as a new believer in high school, well, obviously... Being in high school, I, I knew everything that there was, and everyone else had to catch up to what I knew. But those elements felt archaic and out of touch using words like hath and thee and thou and, and things like that. That I was like, well, you know, like, give me some of these more updated uh, praise songs and things like that uh, because I wanted something that was more familiar, more, something that was more comfortable to what I wanted out of worship. But as I've grown in my faith, so is my appreciation of these things and these elements and these, these hymns that came long before I did because they were part of the church long before I came along and started ex- extending my preferences and the choices that I wanted to see. <clears throat> but uh, over the past several decades, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there was actually a church growth model designed to get more people into churches, and it was called the seeker-sensitive movement. And it was uh, a model of, of getting more people into churches by being uh, more sensitive to those that were outside of the church, and not sensitive as far as caring for their actual needs, but more sensitive as in uh, more trying to please the non-believer, trying to make it more comfortable for the outsiders to come in. And so a lot of times you would see it, the, the Christian me- message displayed in very uh, elaborate, creative elements uh, through, uh, through dance and song and, and multimedia performances and things like that. And <clears throat> I think one of the strangest elements was uh, uh, I was in Memphis, Tennessee, and I actually visited a church that used the old 70s classic rock song, Everyday People, as its call to worship. And, and their, their church motto was, we are the flock that rocks. And, I, and it might have gotten people into the seats, but it felt like there was an element of church worship that was more focused on people's comfort than worshiping the true and living God. Because this whole seeker-sensitive movement was all about trying to make church and worship more 
hip and relevant and accessible to people who were not accustomed to those things. And so over the past few decades, you see more and more churches that were trying to portray the message instead of let's come and worship the true and living God, you see churches saying, well, we are just like everyone else. We have the same music. We do the same things. We just slap that Jesus sticker on there and that makes it okay. As long as you put the little, uh, the, the little ichthus Jesus fish on the back of your car, you're covered. Because if it was popular, there had to be the Christian version of it. And my first job was actually at Family Christian Store in Northwoods Mall. And so I have to confess, I actually sold a lot of that, as I like to call it, Jesus junk. You know, as long as you slap the name of Jesus on there, that makes it better. And there was, uh, and granted, there were actually, uh, there was a wealth of great Christian artists and musicians, but by and large, a lot of the Christian music was just a pale imitation of what was popular in the media, and they would just slip the name of Jesus in there every few lines. And in fact, some songs, you can't tell if they're singing more about their boyfriend or Jesus, and it just kind of makes it kind of icky to sing along. But then you see the, the, the Christian books that came along, and I think of people like Frank Peretti, who were trying to be like the, the Christian Stephen King. And, and that's just a strange combination. And if you've ever read any of his books, you completely understand what I'm getting at. But there had to be a Christian equivalent of, of whatever was popular. And you would see these really, really silly and cheesy Jesus t-shirts, and I had a lot of them. I, was, I, I, I prided myself in that. Um, <coughs> but instead of Abercrombie and Fitch, it would say, a breadcrumb and fish. Or uh, one of my personal favorites was, instead of the Mountain Dew logo, it said, really tiny letters, Jesus meant to die for you. And, and, and if it was popular, there was a Christian equivalent trying to, to parody that. And, and not all of it was bad. Some of it was, they became actual tools that could be useful in evangelism. But for decades, so many churches and Christians were so focused on being relevant that the church forgot that it was called to be set apart. The church forgot that it was called to be different from the rest of the world. And we see in this passage in Ephesians this morning that Paul is saying that Christians aren't supposed to be just like everyone else. We have a background just like everyone else. All of us come from sinful, broken hearts. But the Christian life is not was never meant to look just like the rest of the world around. And in fact, Paul is saying that the Christian life should be noticeably different from a non-Christian life. Instead of trying to imitate pop culture and just slap a Jesus sticker on it and pretend that everything's okay as long as you say Jesus every now and then, that the Christian life should be so different that outsiders see it, that non-believers see the life of the Christian, and they see that something is different. That for the faithful life of the Christian, that there's not just talk about Jesus, but there's action that supports the talk. That the very life of the Christian itself should point to who 
Jesus is. And in this passage, we see three ways. In verses 17 through 24, first we see that the Christian, our Christian, you are to turn from your former life. So that's the first, the, the first point. Turn from your former life. Second, in verses 25 through 30, that you are to grow in the faithful life. And lastly, in verses 31 and 32, that you are called to share the forgiven life. Before I go any further, let us pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together this morning that we can come, we can worship, we can sing these songs, that we can confess our sin, that we can sit at the foot of your throne because you are different. You are the one true and living God. You are the creator. You are our redeemer. And so God, let us come now together to bring the baggage and the idols and just the junk that our hearts are full of and lay it at the foot of your throne and say, God, here I am. In all of my, my weakness, with all of my flaws, with all of my brokenness, meet with us here. Pour out your spirit in this place. Speak your truth through me that this would not be uh, my ramblings or my musings or my thoughts, but God, that you would use me as your mouthpiece to communicate your truth, your gospel, to advance your kingdom with your people. I pray this in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. Now Paul, quick recap, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. Hence the name Ephesians. And this church was located in modern-day Turkey uh, near the Aegean Sea. All right, So these were not Jewish converts. These were Gentile converts to the Judeo-Christian faith. The Christian faith that grew out of the Jewish faith. So these were Gentile converts to Christianity. These were outsiders that have been brought into the fold. And so when Paul says in verse 17 that this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of, uh, in the futility of their minds, there, there was a little bit of controversy just around that approach because if you're familiar with the book of Acts, there was actually a lot of, of arguing and, and discussion and controversy over should Jewish or, or Gentile converts have to observe Jewish practices? Because a lot of the, the Jewish Christians, well, they still observed several of their, their feasts and, and the, the Passover and things like that, but it just, I guess, blended into the Christian faith. Whereas the Gentile converts, sorry, I'm kicking microphone stands here, but the Gentile converts did not have that background. And so there was a lot of discussion of should the Gentiles who are coming into this faith have to observe these things that the Jews have done for generations? And that is not what Paul is getting at it at all here. He's not saying that outsiders coming in have to observe the same Jewish practices. He's saying what they have to do is they have to abandon the pagan futility of how they grew up, of relying on their own 
uh, intellect, of relying on their own understanding, of relying on whatever gods they formerly practiced or, or worshipped, however they grew up. And this is true for Gentiles and Jews alike, that as they come into the Christian faith, to abandon that former life as they grow in the Christian life. That many in that culture viewed turning from God as a sense of enlightenment. That abandoning God or the concept of a God meant that you were enlightened and more educated, that you were smarter than the rest, that you were not deceived by these concepts of God. And that same line of thought has not stopped. You still see people behaving that way today. And so this line of, of thinking that Paul is writing about, he's writing to the church of today just as much as he was writing to the church in Ephesus. The futility of the Gentile mind is leaning and trusting in your own understanding. Because as finite creatures, it's hard enough to understand the vastness of creation itself, let alone an infinite God who created the vast expanse of of the, the, the earth and the heavens and all of creation. And so he says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I mean, that, that's a pretty hefty list. Uh, that is not an, an encouraging list. Well, you know, th- they made some mistakes, you know, and they just, they just need to work on being better. In fact, I don't know if you noticed, but that this week's sermon is titled Living the New Life Now, and it's kind of a playoff of the whole Joel Osteen, Living Your Best Life Now. That it's not a, a matter of having these shortcomings that you just need to overcome. That through more faith that you will live your best life now, but that the Christian life, that you are called to abandon those old practices and live a new life. That the Christian life should be completely separate and distinct from former sinful ways. We see this list that Paul goes off that they were darkened and alienated. That they were ignorant because of the hardness of their hearts. That they were callous, giving in to sensuality. That they were greedy for every kind of impurity. And you read that list And it almost feels more like you're listening to the daily news than you are actually reading Scripture. Because that list is just as true today as it was when when Paul wrote it. We live in a world where every day we've become accustomed to hearing stories of things like school shootings and human trafficking, stories of addictions, and impurity. That people are so, there's so much hatred towards one another that some people are actually, uh, I saw the other day that someone was mailing pipe bombs to, someone, uh, to people of the, the opposite political party. Because he was so 
there was so much hatred in him towards the opposite political party that he figured the only way to solve his problems was to mail bombs to the people that he viewed as his enemies. And we're in a culture that wants to reject God and Christ and preaches tolerance in the, in the name of being more enlightened. And it seems that instead of becoming more tolerant, we've become less tolerant as a culture, as a whole. There, there is less tolerance and more hatred that abandoning God and Jesus does not bring more unity, it brings more division. And that's why Paul is urging the church, turn from your former life. The futility of the way that you used to think and approach life, abandon those ways of thinking. In fact, in Paul's letter to the, to the church in Colossae, uh, the, the Colossians, he's even more uh, uh, blunt about it. He's more emphatic about abandoning that former life. He says, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, that they should not just abandon it, that they should put it to death. Not, oh, just... I just need to cut back on some of these things. I know they're bad. I'm just going to stop doing some of them. He says, put it to death. He doesn't say, well, the blood of Jesus makes you clean and you're covered. And so you can keep doing those things, but just know that God's got you. You're okay now. That's a cheap and empty grace. He says, put those things to death. Don't go there anymore. Don't walk in those ways. In verse 20, he goes on, but that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That as they have learned truth, and this is their reminder, as they have learned the truth of who Jesus is and what He did and what He is doing and what He will do, that they are to put off the old self. Their old personality, the identity that they found in their own way of life, put off that old self and put on the new self. That you are found in Christ, the one who has redeemed you, the one who, who gave his very life for you. Find your identity and your, your, your very way of thinking in him. It's very reminiscent of, of John chapter 3, where Jesus is talking with, with Nicodemus the Pharisee and just the utter confusion that Nicodemus has when Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is so confused as how can a, a fully grown person be born again? A, a, a grown person cannot climb back into their mother's womb. How can a person be born again? Because it's a, a complete and radical different 
life. It's not just an intellectual ascent. It's not just memorizing Scripture and facts about who Jesus was. It's not being able to come up here and just recite your catechism or to say, uh, well, I, I, lear- I memorized these five verses this week. It, the Christian life is not just about knowledge. It, it is about change. It is about a heartfelt change that affects the heart, or the heart and the mind. The heart and the mind. We're called to love God with our heart and our soul and everything within us. That it, a Christianity that does not just take place here in the head, but in your, your very actions, the, the way that you carry yourself, the way that you treat other people. And so you have to examine your own heart and say, what are the former ways that you are clinging to? What are the, the former ways of your old self that you find so hard to just let go? And, and I'm not going to stand up here and say that you need to, to burn all of your classic rock albums. This isn't going to be one of those like old-fashioned, like, bring in all of your Jay-Z and we're going to burn it. No, it's not, it's not going to be all of that. Because I, I, I don't know how many people in here listen to Jay-Z. That was literally the first thing that came into my head. But, but it's a matter of the heart. John Calvin described the heart as a, an, an idle factory, that your heart is constantly churning out things other than the true and living God to worship. Your heart constantly wants to worship and adore things other than than God. And so what are the things in your own life that you want to cling to and, and, and refuse to let go of that Paul is saying, abandon the former self, put off the old self, and put on the new self? Maybe it's just the stubbornness of self-reliance that you keep telling yourself and everybody else, I don't need any help. I can do this on my own. Maybe it's trying to be good enough to win, to, the, to win people's approval or favor or uh, uh, trying to be a people pleaser and keep everybody happy. In all honesty, that's where my heart goes. I want, I want everybody, in, it's not enough for people to like me. People need to love me. I crave that. But I recognize that sinfulness in my own heart and I try to put it to death as I pursue Christ. Maybe it's your morality that you're trying, that if, if you can just be good enough and abandon these, the bad things that other people do, well, I know that they do those things, but look at me, I don't do those things anymore. That's not a, a Christian faith. That's, that's a faith of, of moralism and legalism. Maybe there is actual legitimate sin that, that you are just uh, uh, fighting and struggling with that you need to abandon and let go of uh, uh, addictions or, or uh, I, I'm not going to, to get into descriptive lists, but maybe there are, are sinful habits in your own life. The places that you go to, the things that you look at that you need to abandon and say this is not the Christian life. Because then as you begin to put those things to death, it makes it easier as you to continue to grow in the faithful life. 
In verse 25, Paul says, therefore, and I've heard this, I've heard so many times that pastors say, and I've heard this ever since I became a Christian, so I'm going to repeat it so it's going to be stuck in your head too, that any time in Scripture that you see someone say, therefore, that you have to ask, what is it there for? And Paul says, therefore, because he's talking about getting rid of the old life, putting off the old life, put it to death, put on the new life, therefore, having put away falsehood, putting off, having gotten rid of those former ways, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. He starts going into examples of what a, a growing faithful Christian life should look like. And most of these uh, are following a pattern of a stop this, do this method or pattern. He's saying, you were doing these things, stop it. Don't do that anymore. Do this. I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, I, I, I believe it was a Bob Newhart comedy sketch where he's uh, a, a counselor and these people would come in to see him and they're talking about these struggles that they have and he just says, stop it. Well, I've really been struggling with depression. Stop it. And, and it's hilarious because that is a, a horrible approach to counseling. But it's, it's almost like that's what Paul is saying with, with your faith. Well, you know, I've, I've really been, been struggling with, with the, these, this anger towards my brothers and sisters. Stop it. And Paul is straight up saying, stop doing these sinful things and start living the faithful Christian life. Stop, abandon falsehood, and speak the truth. For we are all one. Or we are our members one of another. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now this, I, I, I always find this really interesting because he's not saying don't be angry. Your anger in itself is not a sin. Your emotions that you have are not sinful. God created you to be an emotional being. Your emotions are not sinful. It's what you do with them that either stays in righteousness or leads you to sin. He says, be angry and do not sin. When Jesus was angry about the, the money changers and the vendors and the temple, he was filled with a righteous anger as he drove these, these charlatans out of the house of God. His anger was not in sin, but he was angry. Your anger in itself is not sinful. It's how you choose to, to express it, how you choose or what you choose to do with your anger. And he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Don't dwell in your anger. Don't let it sit there and boil and fester. It begins to, to consume you. Your anger actually does more harm against you than whatever or whoever it is that you're ang angry against. 
And Paul says that this is actually a foothold for the devil. That dwelling and resting in your anger gives the enemy, and there is a real, real spiritual enemy resting and trusting in your anger gives more opportunity for him, the enemy, to distract you from the, the hope and the faith and the, the charity, mercy, forgiveness, grace of the one true living God. He goes on and gives an example of, of continuing in the Christian life. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. It's not specifically addressing thieves themselves that whoever, all right, if anyone in here is a thief, stop that. Just don't do that anymore and start doing honest work. It's not just directed towards thieves, but it's, it's what the thief represents. Whoever is pursuing dishonest work. Whoever is pursuing gain by dishonest means, either by stealing or lying or cheating, whatever it is that is not characteristic of a faithful Christian life, whatever is not honorable and giving glory to God in the way that you work, stop. Stop dishonest work and pursue honest work. Not just for yourself, but as, as he says, uh, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That, that your honest work can actually be a benefit to those in need. And I don't know if, you, if you've ever approached your own work like that. If that thought has ever entered your mind, but the way that you conduct your business is an opportunity to encourage, to help, and to share with those who are struggling. Even if it's just the encouragement of, you know what, there is someone out there with an honest business ethic. There is someone out there who's willing to, to, to do things the hard way, the honest way. And I need to see more people like those. That instead of taking the shortcuts, instead of gaining, uh, uh, instead of trying to get ahead by any means possible, to take the effort to say, no, I'm going to do things the right way. That you can be an encouragement and a blessing to those in need. And verse 29 is possibly the hardest for me, as he says, let no, corrupting talk, uh, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. For me, it's more about my, my, my wanting to make a joke out of everything, my, sarca my, my sarcastic tongue, that I can often be so quick to want to crack a joke at someone else's expense. When as we covered in James a few months ago, that I need to put a bridle on my tongue. That when I am speaking these things that are not building other people up, that it's actually a, a destructive fire, consuming and destroying. He says, let no corrupting talk come out, but only such as is good for building up. 
Do you use your words and your tongue to build others up, to encourage them? The things that you, the, the things that you talk about at home, at school, at work, are, are the, the conversations that you're having building and encouraging others? And then in verse 30, he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That for the Christian continuing in sin, your sin is grieving the Holy Spirit. You will make mistakes. You will mess up. You will stumble and fall. DC Talk had a song about it. But for those who are actively continuing in sin and the unfaithful life, that that sin is grieving the Spirit of God Himself. And He says, do not do that. Do not continue in your sin. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. But there is good news because these things, if you look at this list and say, there is no way I can just stop all of the sin in my heart and just live this perfect Christian life now, The good news is, it's a growth process that hopefully the Christian that you are today is more more grown in faith than when you first came to know who this Jesus was. That the Christian that you are a year from now has grown more than you have today. At home, I actually have a, uh, it, it's still inside right now because of the, the, the frost that has been coming in over the past week and the, the, the early morning. But I actually grew, I have grown a lemon tree from a seed that I planted back in 2015. And uh, it, it, it took a long time just to see that growth take place. But it took effort. And in fact, it probably won't even start producing fruit for another year or two just because it takes so long for that growth process to get to a point where it is producing actual fruit. But if I had just planted that seed and after a week said, well, it's not doing anything, it must not be a real lemon. That's not how the growth process takes place, but I think a lot of times we view our Christian faith in the same way. We say, well, I, I'm not seeing any change, so you know, I'm just going to, that's too hard. I'm not going to do that anymore. Because I know in, in the, the weakness of my own flesh, there are times where I want to, to just give up because certain things are difficult. But the Christian faith is a process of growth. In fact, Paul writes in another letter in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That your Christian growth, the growth of your faith, doesn't happen exponentially overnight, that it's, it changes from one degree to another. That it's not this huge, massive growth that just overnight, well, all right, I've, I've done it. I've, I've achieved Holiness and righteousness and I'm good. But that the rest of your life 
is a process of growth and learning and understanding. And this side of, the, of, of Jesus coming back, we will never obtain a spot in our lives where we can say, all right, I'm done. I've reached that point. But the rest of our life is a work in progress that you are growing, but you are not there yet. And that God himself is changing you from one degree of glory to another. And so what in your own life do you need to stop doing to put off? And what do you need to start doing? I once heard someone say that saying no to something is saying yes to something else. What is it in your own life that you need to say no to so you can begin saying yes to the faithful things? And lastly, perhaps what makes the Christian so noticeably different we see in the last two verses. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. In these verses, Paul is reminding the church then and today, share the forgiven life. He starts his list with bitterness that bitterness that has taken root because once that bitterness takes root it leads to the other things in the list that bitterness leads to wrath or anger clamor slander malice that those things all start from a bitterness that has taken root in the heart but he reminds the church to live in kindness to be tender hearted and that those come from a heart of forgiveness. And not just a forgiveness, well, you asked for forgiveness, so I'm go- it's okay. I know you hurt me, but it's okay. No, he says that this is a forgiveness as God and Christ forgave you. This is a heavy forgiveness. This is a costly forgiveness. Because at one time that you were considered an enemy of God, you were not asking for forgiveness from God. And yet in God's love for you, His Son put on flesh and dwelt among creation. That on the cross, He took your punishment that you deserved. He took your death on that cross. And in His resurrection, He gave you His righteousness and His victory over sin and death. That is the kind of forgiveness that Paul is saying to live in. The kind of forgiveness that is heavy and costly. To forgive even if the guilty party has not asked for forgiveness. Because that is who you were when you were forgiven. This is not sitting around waiting for an apology that this is an active forgiveness, that you are actively pursuing redemption and reconciliation and the broken relationships around you. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus himself says, 
A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, that love, the love that includes forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation, that this love, that is what people will see and know that you are a Christ follower. It's not how many scriptures you've memorized. It's not how many theological answers you can answer. But it's how do you love? How do you forgive? Because forgiveness is a direct display of the love of Christ. And that is something that the world can never offer. And so today, will you live your life stuck trying to be relevant, trying to live a so-called Christian life by trying to live like everyone else but just slapping a Jesus sticker on it with your clever Christian t-shirt? the little Jesus fish sticker on your car, pretending that if you just do enough Christian stuff that you're going to be okay? Or is your life going to be noticeably different from the world around you? Will you turn from your former life and put on the new self? Will you grow in the faithful life of a Christian? And most importantly, will you share that forgiven life that forgiveness that was shown to you. Which will you choose? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can come together today. God, we thank you uh, that we were not called to live like everyone else, but that as your people, that you have called us to be set apart, that our lives are meant to be different from the world around us. That we're supposed to live a new life, a life of faith, resting in your forgiveness. And so as we leave here today, as we go back to our homes and our schools and our workplace and everywhere else that we go, remind us of the love and the forgiveness that you showed to us. Do not let us rest in our own strength and our own abilities, but be our strength. Be our love and help us to forgive as you have forgiven us. We pray all of this in the mighty and victorious and the loving name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.